This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. So this morning, we're going to walk within the tall mountains of theology and get a grasp of who we are and who God is. So I want you to turn to Romans chapter 9, really the second half of Romans chapter 9. And I want you to know you're about to have a deep experience here with the Scripture. Everyone, I think, after going through it this week, everyone needs at some time in their life to be put on the spot and have to teach this passage. I would love to hear you teach it. In fact, I even thought about just getting mics and passing it out among the audience, saying, well, what do you think of these verses? But this morning, I'm going to walk you through the last half of this chapter. And as we do, I think you'll have two overwhelming experiences. The first experience is that God is incredibly big. He's going to get so big to the place that it's scary. And at the same time, we're going to become awfully small. And finding our place in that will be something that, in fact, will be difficult for us because we resist both those experiences. We don't like God to be too big, and we don't like, do we, to be too small. And yet, that's what you feel when you walk through those verses. That's what you probably even felt a little bit. You wish Dan would have camped there a little more last week when he came upon verse 13 of Romans chapter 9, and God just simply throws out this phrase, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So what are you going to do about it? Feel that? Or when you come to the verse that Dan left us with, verse 18, where it says, For God, for He has mercy on whom He desires, and He hardens whom He desires. God couldn't really do that, could He? God doesn't really mean that, does He? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Can God really do that? Oh yes, little one. Oh yes, little infinitesimally small one. <laughs> he can do just as He pleases and much more. And then we want to recoil in, the, in, the, in, in our inflated view of ourselves and go in some way to debate that and say, but that doesn't seem fair to us. And God speaks from heaven and says, do you even understand what fair is? You... You, the one described in that poem, you're going to tell me what fair is? Come on. Let's get real. And then all of a sudden, we feel swept away in the surf, back out into the ocean with this thorny issue that sometimes you just have to face, but you don't like it. And you're there flailing around in the white water around this issue of God's sovereignty and man's free will. And that's where we are this morning. The issue of who God is and the issue of who we are. And both of these are addressed in our passage. Each of these is introduced by a question. The first question you'll see is in verse 19. The second question is addressed in verse 30. And I want you to know this is one of the most difficult passages there is in all of Scripture because of the mysteries they introduce that we will not solve, we can only be exposed to. So let's look at the first question. It's about God's sovereignty. It's found in verse 19. It says, as, as the reader hears 
about how big God is and that He can just choose what He wants to do. And that He can move on people and harden them and raise them up and put them down and change nations and remove rulers and put others in their place when they hear all that hardening and having mercy and those kind of things. Paul already anticipates what the response would be. And he lists it there in verse 19. He says, you will say to me then, then why does he find fault? For who can resist his will? See, the move now is not to total freedom that we thought we had, but now to full-fledged fatalism that we're just kind of mechanized robots being pulled like puppets from God's strings. What do we do with that? Well, before I let you hear Paul's answer to that question, I want to offer you just some big picture perspectives about God's sovereignty and the different faces of it in Scripture. Because there are really two principal faces. First, God's will has a promise side to it and a personal side to it. A promise side and a personal side. Most of Romans 9, 10, 11, as he speaks to Israel, is on the promise side. But there's a promise side and a personal side. From the standpoint of God's declared promises, things that you see in Scripture where it says God says, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I'm going to make this happen and I'm going to bring the world to this conclusion. When you read those things and you hear God's will, His choice, standing apart from you and everything you are and everything this world is, when God says, I'm going to do that, then God's will is irresistible. You can take it to the bank. God will do what He's promised to do. He will cause all of history to, in the end, be what we've heard before, and that's His story. As Dan said last week, it's not about us, this story. It's about Him. History will ebb and flow, and it will ebb and flow as He chooses to direct it. History will move about and things will be accomplished as He dictates and plans. And the end of this world will come when He says so. His will in that sense is irresistible. It's the promised will of God. And the real issue really flowing through Romans 9, 10, and 11 is Paul takes this moment to speak to what's happened to Israel, His chosen people, is really from history's promised side. Because God promised Israel certain things. He promised that Israel would be a chosen people, favored among the nations. Now they thought of them as being pretty good to get that choice, but see, they didn't understand their heart's condition. Favored among the nations, no different than Jacob was favored over Esau within the nation. Not because of anything they had done, good or bad, just because God says, I choose to pick him. And that's what he did among the nations. He said, I'm going to choose you. And what is he going to do as he chooses them? He promised that he would bless them. He promised them that he would make them plentiful. He promised that salvation would throw, th flow through their bloodline. And he promised that history would not end without them being in their promised land, embracing their promised Messiah. He said, I'm going to do that. Doesn't matter about you. I will do that. Well, that causes a question, especially at this time when we've been going through Romans and it would be what any Jew would think because here's Paul saying that God's turned away from the Jews and turned to the Gentiles and His blessing is flowing through them and the gospel's going out. And, and, and just for the sake of argument, the, the Jew or Israel could stand back and say, no, wait a minute, or even the Gentiles say, well, that means that they have resisted 
the promises of God. Look! Is that true? Has God's promises, His promised will to Israel failed? And of course, as Dan said last week, absolutely not. God will keep investing Himself. Listen, God will keep investing Himself sovereignly into the life of the people of Israel. No matter whether they're a nation, no matter if they're scattered to the ends of the earth in dispersal and destruction, He will keep sovereignly investing Himself in that chosen people until all He promised them is fulfilled to the absolute letter. No matter what they may look like at any particular time in history. Now, if these verses had been written years previous to these events, Israel would have looked like, yes, we're the chosen people, but now there are people under domination of Rome. And not only that, but God has used Paul to say he's moving on to the Gentiles and they think, well, what's happened to us? And then a few years later, they're going to be destroyed and scattered throughout all the earth. And for 2,000 years, it's going to look like God has set his promises aside. And I can show you theologians in the 16th century, the 17th century, and the 18th century who said just that. They had to spiritualize Israel and say it's gone away. God's not going to fulfill those promises. But God says, sovereignly, I will do what I want to do. And so now they're in their land. And one day they will embrace their Messiah. Because they figured it out? No, because God sovereignly keeps moving on those people. Because He chooses to do so. And we go, why? Well, now we move in some of the realm of mystery. He's got His reasons. And He will do what He wants to do. So in this larger corporate sense of promise, the will of God is irresistible. And not just for Israel, by the way. We need to hear this because it also applies to the church. It also applies to the world. He will influence direction. He will choose favorites. He will. He will raise up some and put down others. He will have mercy on whom He desires and He will harden who He wants. And He will guarantee the outcomes by His intervention in history, all for what He wants to accomplish. That's God. And doesn't He look awfully big when you say that? Doesn't He look out of our control? Don't we feel awfully small? And yet so much, so much of who we are, we didn't choose. He chose for us. The very fact that you're sitting in this room rather than buried under a landslide in Honduras, is because of a choice God made. The very reason you are in comfort rather than staggering in hunger in Ethiopia is because of a choice God made. We don't like to hear that. And we say, well, does that make us better than them? And the answer is, absolutely not. You missed the whole point. The point is, is that God can do what he wants to do. But there's a second big picture perspective, not just from the promised side of God's will, but the personal side of God's will. And here's what I want you to know. Even while God is moving this world towards his appointed ends, fulfilling his appointed promises through his own sovereign influences, we also know another thing that's just as real, don't we? We know it. And that is that individuals like you and me can resist the will of God. Can't we? Is not the whole Bible, or at least a good percentage of the Bible, an appeal to us to choose? Most of Romans is. 
most of the rest of the Bible is, to respond to God through the instrument of faith. The promised side of God's will is irresistible. The personal side of God's will is not. And of course, how these things work together, where they come together, where they intersect, this infinite mix of God's sovereign will and the myriad and billion of billions of personal wills mixed together, where those mixed together is incomprehensible. We're not only baffled by it, but we do what this author has portrayed for us here in Romans 9. At times when we feel overwhelmed by it, we argue with it. And that's what's really going on in Romans 9. He's arguing, well, then who can resist his will? In essence, verse 19 is saying, if God's sovereign acts harden some, then who's, how can he find fault with them? And if God's sovereign will delivers other, then what choice did they really have? Really? Who can resist his will? Because we can't understand that mix. But now here's how Paul answers it. He answers it first with a little rebuff. Notice verse 20. He says, on the contrary, and always Jewish people like to answer a question with a question, so that's what Paul faithfully does. On the contrary, who are you, old man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another just simply for common use? Does he not have that choice? You see, for a creature to argue with a creator already shows something is tragically flawed, and it's not with the creator. Just imagine a creature arguing with its creator. Where does that ever happen except on a little planet called Earth? The planets don't argue with God about their creation. The stars, the heavens, our physical universe, you don't find, you know, some bird out there arguing about why did you give me these wings, you know? You know, or plant life coming up and saying, I don't want to bloom at this time. Why did you do that? No, that seems ridiculous, but here's man. Here's man, a creation by everyone's account. And what is man doing? Man is arguing with God about himself. Why did you make me thus? Why is life like this? You remember the movie Frankenstein? Some of you do from a long time ago, but that movie was really about a doctor who had a bold attempt, and that bold attempt was to make from this creation of his life that was as much like himself as possible. But as you know, as the story goes, in the end, what he created was a Frankenstein. He created a colossal monster that in the end had to be destroyed, but his attempt was to try to make life as close to him as possible. And that's exactly what happened between man and God. See, God spun the worlds into existence and all the created order, and then at the end, he decided to make a life as close to himself as possible. But you know, when you do that, just like with Frankenstein, there's a huge risk involved. Because when you make life so close to you, so much in your awesome likeness, so much with capacities of self-understanding and self-direction, with unlimited freedoms that are like God, something can and did go wrong. See, we could have been, if we had followed God's design, beings of incredible power and beauty. But what God got was us. Remember over in this? This is what God got. Spiritual Frankensteins. 
That's us. With divided hearts and divided loyalties that use people and abuse people and manipulate people all for our own personal aim. Who oftentimes will make others follow principle while we excuse ourselves every day from that same principle. Who will come in and worship God on Sunday and then the very next minute as they're walking out plan to do some despicable act and see no inconsistency with that because they'll reason it through in their own foolishness and arrogance. That's man. Spiritual Frankensteins. And then when God calls us to account, we would rather argue with Him than listen to Him. And what could God have done if we really understand how big He is? Well, God could have done just like the good doctor did in the movie. He could have destroyed His creation. And listen, He would have been perfectly right in destroying it all, obliterating every one of us, these children, who are by nature, by nature, children of wrath. Children who Paul, in even an uglier description, back in Romans, remember back in Romans 3 when he says, there is none who seeks for God. There is none who does good. There is none who has understanding. All have turned aside. Everyone has become useless. That's man. That's man. And God could have destroyed us all. But you know, a sovereign God, separated from this mess, chose to do something totally different. By something within him, in Himself that we will never fully understand, that we can only comprehend with a simple word called grace. Rather than giving these vessels of destruction their due, what He did instead was consider another alternative. And Paul presents that alternative. Look, in verse 22, he says, What if, what if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath, He could have done it, and to make His power known in wiping it all out, what if instead He endured by sovereign choice with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if He did so with a purpose in mind. And that purpose being that He might make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He chose beforehand for His glory. Even us, Paul says, whom He also called not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. And the question would be, would it be wrong for God to sovereignly choose to endure that which He could destroy, these vessels of wrath, which are every one of us, in order to transform some with His sovereign brushes of glory, where He transforms them into vessels of mercy so that they would have the opportunity to become vessels of salvation? Could God do that and be wrong? And the answer is, if we understand it, God would not be wrong to do that. God would not be wrong to choose some and leave others behind. God would not be wrong if He just chose one and left the rest behind. Because it's His right as God. It's His right. He can do whatever He wants. And vessels of wrath who have distorted by their own choice, their image, 
have no right to claim anything on a God who is exalted so far above them. And so God makes sure by His own intervention that over time some of both Jews and some of both Gentiles will come to Him the way the original man should have. Now that is a view that makes you feel like you're standing at the base of the Rockies looking up and you're not really even sure what to do about it because you feel so helpless. You're not, but you feel that way. Concerning Gentiles, notice what he says, and he uses two Old Testament quotations for the sake of the Jews to whom he's addressing this part of the letter to. He wants them to know that right in their Old Testament it says this. It says from Hosea, I will, cause, I will call those who were not my people, my people. Who will do that? I will. And her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you're not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God because I decided. And how about Israel? The one who was originally chosen. He quotes from Isaiah. He says concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. Why? Why just the remnant? Because even though Israel had so much, its heart was still so wicked. And it would have gone astray even with God pouring out all His wealth and glory on them to help them see they chose not to see. So He had to keep involving Himself and involving Himself to make sure that at least a remnant would be saved. And that's why He goes on in verse 29 and says, Just as Isaiah, your Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of hosts had left to us a posterity, here's what would have happened to us on our own. We would have become as Sodom. And we would have become as Gomorrah. That's us without you. You know, this section of Scripture started with a question. Why does he find fault? Who can resist his will? It's a poor question, but it gets a good answer. And the good answer is this, that God has sovereignly chosen to reach out to humanity that does not deserve to be saved in the least. And had He not so chosen, none none would be saved. Not one. Now I want you to know as you consider that, there are two appropriate responses, I believe. When you read that and you just sit there for a while, there's two appropriate responses to hearing this kind of truth. And that's first of all this. There should be just the response of awe and wonder. It is God who shapes our destinies and our ends. The more you consider what you have no control over that made you who you were, you'll be in awe of how that came about. If you'll just think about it, the skills you have, who chose that? The intellect you embrace, who gave you that? The beauty you possess, where did that come from? The place you live, the person you are, the circumstances that could have come except for the staying hand of God that said it won't come. And for the things that did come because the permitting hand of God said come. With a design in mind. With an end in view. That's God. So this kind of awesome appreciation for what really life is all about, it's not totally free. The foolish only believe that. But at the same time, it's not fully mechanical either. It's a mysterious mixture 
of wills between the divine and the human. Which brings us to the second appropriate response, at least for those of us who sit here hopefully, and that is, when you hear stuff like that, what should overwhelm you is a sense of deep, deep gratefulness because you're here. You're not out there. You're here. To think that God owes me nothing and yet to think that He chose me to be a vessel of mercy. To think that He took the time, the God who owed me nothing, to bestow the riches of His glory with a view in mind to bring me to glory. With the idea that He, he, he saw me as someone that He wanted to engage. And I have no idea why He chose that, but He chose to do that. And had He not chosen to make that merciful move, no mercy, only justice would be left to my lot. You're here because of Him. And there should be a great sense of gratefulness in all of that. Even while questions and mystery still call you to want to find out why not others. That brings us to the second part of our passage, a second question. It's a question that now engages man's free will. You notice it moves from God, why does He, to all of a sudden, Verse 30, what shall we say then? <laughs> Good question. What shall we say then? The spotlight now is on us. And here's what he says. Look at verse 30. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attain righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, taking all that they had been given, pursued a law of righteousness, but they didn't arrive at that law. And why? Because they chose not to pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. And they stumbled over the stone. Just it's written, Behold, I lay a, in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed, but Israel is because they chose to stumble rather than to believe. And we come to this interesting point at the end. If you, if you had been with me sitting on this all week, you come to this place and suddenly it dawns on you as you get to the end of this, that as he speaks to these Gentiles who had been the recipient, recipients of God's favor as the gospel went out to them, that you turn back and you look at your brother's Israel and you realize, but didn't God's favor go out to them? Weren't both of us vessels of mercy? I mean, if you go back to chapter 9, verse 4, it says that Israel had so much of the wealth of God they had His glory, it says in verse 4. They had the prophets preaching to them. They had the law of God. They had, they, 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 they had the temple that instructed them in the way that they should go and all the ceremony. They were favored so much more than anyone else. And yet, and yet, and yet, what this really tells us is that just being a vessel of mercy by God's sovereignty does not mean that you're a vessel of salvation. It means that God has moved. But it means you haven't. You see, as Dan Gerald mentioned last week, Israel took the spiritual wealth that God gave them. And rather than really understanding what it meant, because they had been favored, they made the horrible mistake of assuming salvation for themselves. And therein lies the danger. Because the Gentiles to whom the gospel originally went out knew they were bankrupt, knew they had nothing to offer God. 
And when that message came to them, all they could do was the right thing. And that was believe God. And it resulted in the very righteousness that Israel in all her favor never arrived at. Now why do I say that? Because there's an incredible warning here. Being chosen a vessel of mercy by a sovereign God does not become salvation until you choose to become a vessel of faith. And that's where free will comes in. You have to choose that. The reason I say that is because anytime you're in an audience of this magnitude, of this size, there are people who are vessels of mercy who have squandered their wealth. There are people who've grown up in the church, and I hear it all the time. I have relatives around me who even state it to me so clearly. They grew up, their moms and dads were saints, pursuing God with a passion for God. And in the midst of that wealth, God revealed Himself, revealed His ways, revealed His promises, revealed the blessings and all of that. And they stand in the midst of that stockpile of wealth and assume the wrong thing. They assume that this is all that there is. And they don't engage the message behind that wealth and the person behind that in faith in order to have their own living dynamic relationship with God. And so years later, they're sitting out in a local church because they've learned that habit growing up, still hearing the wealth, but inside as barren as a desert, as absolutely barren as a desert and totally alienated from God. But sitting there in their inflated view of themselves, feeling still that everything's going to be okay. Do you all hear me in that? Does everybody understand that? That is so important that no one assume that just because you may be a vessel of mercy, that you're here and not in some pagan land, that somehow that means God has favored you and the contract has been signed. No, it isn't. It says at the end of chapter 9, he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. Period. The two appropriate responses from that are just simply these. One, I hope that you will leave, some of you will leave here challenged because that's an appropriate response. When you hear a message like this, there's a certain challenge in it about God and who He is and about who you are, but in particular here at the end about my relationship with Him. Do you have a real faith? Or are you just spending the wealth? And then lastly, an appropriate reaction would just simply to be that, well, if we were smart, we would be responsive. We would be responsive because at the end of that response is reward. There's reward. That's why when you move into chapter 10, you will see Paul after giving all this message, not appealing to Israel to look to its wealth, but look how verse 10 starts. I mean, chapter 10 starts. It says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer for God for Israel is for their salvation, not their wealth, not the mercy that's been extended to them. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, for not knowing about God's righteousness and in seeking to establish their own they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, and as a result, they are just as far from God as the pagan. God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. He is so big. And He will choose at His discretion, and as He chooses, there will be times where you will not understand it. 
you will not understand it. Circumstances will come into your life, yet you do not understand. The only thing that we can understand is that in the midst of that, if as those things come and as these blessings flow, if we engage Him, not because of what happens to us, but in faith, the Scripture says, we will live. We will live and will not be disappointed. Let's pray together. Father, we close this morning recognizing that what You declare about Yourself, that You are faithful, that You are sovereign, that You are true to Your Word, that You'll not change any of that. We recognize what a small part we play in this race of life. But Lord, there is comfort there because You're good. There is gratefulness there because You've been merciful to us. There's a lack of understanding there, but all we can do is fall back on the fact that You will never be proven unjust. And yet at the same time, Lord, as we hurdle to a predetermined end in this life, we know the quality of life You have sovereignly chosen to place back into our hands. It's the free will of faith. And I pray for our church. I pray for the individuals who have that sense of God's personal will to know that they determine the quality of their life before a God who's made them a vessel of mercy. And they will determine whether at the end of life they will be disappointed or thrilled. It requires the free will of faith. Help us to have that understanding in the midst of the world which constantly blurs this reality. And help us to become the people You designed us to be. Beings of beauty and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.